Hello, and welcome to the Danielle Newnham podcast, where I interview tech founders and innovators to learn the inspiring human stories behind the game-changing tech we use every day. Today's guest is someone I've wanted to interview for a very long time. It's Adam Wiggins, who is probably most well-known for being co-founder of Heroku, a platform that enables developers to build, run, and operate applications in the cloud. On his website, Adam describes himself as someone who is working to improve computers in service of human creativity and prosperity, which I love. And this is very much a theme that weaves its way throughout our conversation. Adam's current focus is on Muse, a tool for thought app that was spun out of his research lab, Inc. and Switch, which we discuss in the interview. Adam is also a startup investor and advisor and co-host of the MetaMuse podcast with Muse co-founder Mark McGranigan. In our interview today, Adam and I discuss his childhood fascination with computers, how as an introvert he fell in love with designing software products, and how we should all be asking ourselves how can we put more effort into making computers and the internet somewhere that really improves humanity's most important noble pursuits, such as art and science, as well as our mental and physical health. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. Here is my interview with Adam Wiggins. I wanted to say thank you so much for joining me today. The first question I always ask every guest is, what were you like growing up? And I wondered if you could talk about maybe some of your early influences or experience that you feel shaped you. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, so I probably had a childhood that was a lot like a lot of, uh, let's call it nerdy, introverted uh, type people. And I was had an, a very early fascination with computers. And I think it was sort of amplified by that we lived in a rural area for a while. My dad was in the Navy. We were stationed at a just a rural naval base. And so there weren't a lot of other kids around uh, or kind of maybe more traditional activities. But happily, this was around the time. This was kind of the the late 80s, I guess, and mid-late 80s. And I'd come across computers in school. So Atari's or uh, the Apple II, that sort of thing, and had become pretty fascinated with them. And much credit goes to my mom for kind of uh, supporting, recognizing and supporting this interest. And while she didn't understand it or connect to it, uh, she saw that this was something that was really enriching for me and did a lot of, made a lot of efforts such as, I don't know, setting up a deal with the school library to let us borrow an Apple II over the summer, that sort of thing that would allow me to get greater access to, to computing devices. So that kind of combination of living in uh, a rural place, having maybe a more naturally um, withdrawn personality or something like that, an interest in computers, and then all those came together nicely, which meant from a very early age, I was learning to program, learning, you know, the analytical and engineering mindset, and in general, fascinated with computers as a creative medium. That's really interesting to hear, because I always compare a lot of the founders I speak to have a very similar background, like you said, but then I compare it to children today, who, because my son wants all the time in the world on computers, but Obviously, he's not actually building anything. And I find it really interesting that if my son had grown up in your generation, he would have been the same as you, right? But now it's all prepackaged. And so everything's much more accessible. I, I think tech entrepreneurs and tech founders and hackers grew up in that kind of time when you couldn't basically do anything unless you programmed it yourself, whereas now it's just all readily available. So it'd be interesting to see the impact on what these children do when they're older. Anyway, on that note, um, so you, so what was interesting about you as well is not only were you interested in computers, but you obviously had some entrepreneurial spirit. And I don't know if that showed itself young, did it? Or was it just something that happened as a result of wanting certain products out in the world? 
Yeah. Again, uh, referencing my mom here, she would tell you that that entrepreneurial spirit did show itself very early, which often comes more in the form, I think, of uh, it's less, do I want to start a business, and more in a form of a desire to follow your own path, a desire to kind of do your own thing, make your own way. Uh, I was actually often in conflict with teachers and other authority figures where I basically just didn't agree with their style or what they were trying to teach us, and I would push back against that. And, you know, that's not what, you know, the systems we've created to educate and uh, guide our young people aren't really designed for choosing your own path. Or, or maybe this has changed in modern times, I don't know, but at least in the time and place I was growing up, that was true. Uh, for example, I remember quite clearly that spelling was a huge topic when in elementary school, and I had already gotten some exposure to word processors, and spell checking was, while crude, was um, was something that was available, and you could, or to me it seemed obvious that the technology was going to develop in a way that would mean that spelling was not an important skill, and I would argue this to my, my teachers and say, basically, uh, this is st a stupid waste of time, why are you wasting all of our time with this, computers are going to do this for us in the future, um, and they didn't, you know engage in discussion on that with me. They just said, well, just do it because I'm the teacher and, and you're the student. And if I recall correctly, it led me to coming up with inventive ways to, to cheat, which typically involved like using the laser printer in the computer lab to print out very small font uh, answer keys to the test being given, that sort of thing, which was less about that I, you know, it was probably just as much work as actually just studying and memorizing the material. But for me, it was about a sense of kind of exercising my own agency about what I thought was a better use of my time or a better kind of maybe rebelling against what I saw as a bad use of everyone's time. Well, with schools, I feel like the same is true now that there's this normality that you go in and you do as you're told and you don't, there's no room to kind of grow. And I think what's interesting is as an introverted child or a quiet child, being able to push back on the teacher showed that, you know, you were a principled child, even though a quiet one. I hope so. You could you could just take it as I was a behavior problem. And a no, but I don't but... think so, because, a lot. you know, this is another interesting thread between the founders that I interview. And there's lots of kids that were exactly the same. They grew up with not an issue with authority, but if they felt they knew more about a particular subject or they had obviously like you tinkered at home, it was almost like they knew there were other ways. Whereas for kids that don't have exposure to new things almost or grow up in a different environment where possibly they're not encouraged by their parents to kind of go out and see the world by themselves, then actually they believe that what they're being taught at school is the right way and the only way. So I think it's good. And I think your mum deserves a lot of gratitude there because she obviously nurtured your interests. And I guess I'm assuming, did you get in trouble with your mom for pushing back at school? Yeah, but I think she often had a bit of an attitude of, okay, look, this is just a system that you have to fit into. You know, I, you, I can see why you think it doesn't make sense, but like life often involves conforming to systems you don't agree with. And of course, that's very true. Even as, as an adult, mm -hmm. as an entrepreneur, I've been able to you know, design a life for myself that mostly involves me doing, spending my time on things that I think are really worthwhile and valuable and play to my strengths and whatever. But we all still have to do our taxes. And I don't know, we're in the process right now of uh, getting my, my daughter into, you know, kindergarten here in Germany. And that has a whole, you know, bureaucratic system you have to conform to. And it's just, it, you may feel like there's a better path, but we all have to conform to systems 
in our life. And that in a way is a skill that we need. Um, now I think we overemphasize that probably in education and helping people, helping kids choose their own path. Something of course I'll try to do for my daughter. Although I'll be curious to see what happens when she starts pushing back against my authority. And mm -hmm. then I say, well, wait a minute, I'm all for choosing your own path until I'm the authority figure. Okay. Hopefully not, but you know, <laughs> we'll see what happens when the tables are turned right. Yes. It'll be interesting to see. Moving forward a bit. So you are obviously interested in computers and like you said, you're somebody that wanted to kind of forge your own path. I know that you've had your fingers in a few pies in terms of entrepreneurial activities, but obviously it was something you're kind of the most well-known for in many ways is Heroku. And I know you founded it with James Lindenbaum and is it Orion Henry in 2007? Orion, yeah, exactly, like the constellation. Can you tell us a bit more about it for those that don't know and also why you started it? Absolutely. So Heroku is a way to basically take a web application you've written on your local computer and make it run on the internet. Uh, which typically, or at least historically, uh, you know, prior to when we started it, typically involved purchasing a physical server or in some cases a shared host, involved a lot of systems knowledge that was kind of separate from building the application. So the idea there, the innovation was sometimes you call it like one button deployment where you just, you have your local application that you've written and is running and you just push a button, metaphorically speaking, and then it's live on the web with a URL you can, you can share with people. So yeah, we had the idea to do that because we were part of the Ruby language community, kind of open source community, Ruby on Rails in particular, circa 2006. And we were doing a lot of freelance uh, work. We we're kind of in between ventures and we were doing some freelance work and using Ruby on Rails and seeing what a delight it was for building applications that are really focused on developer happiness and the experience of the developer, you might say. But when it came time to deploy it, now you're back in server provisioning, setting up Linux kind of world. And so we saw an opportunity there, a product we wanted for ourselves was something that made the deployment and scaling side of running a web application as enjoyable and sleek and as this, and beautiful as uh, as the Ruby programming language was. So that's that's where Heroku came from. And in terms of the early days, can you tell me a bit more about them? And even actually, how did you meet James and Orion? Orion, I knew from university, and we had worked on MUDS, which was a kind of early text-based multiplayer adventure game together in the university. And then James, we met up with or through the process of this kind of consulting business we were doing. Again, we were in between ventures. We needed to pay the bills. We weren't sure what was next. And happily, that was the venture, both because we met James, but then in the process of learning Ruby and Rails and being exposed to this problem of wanting to deploy applications and not worry as much about the maintenance over time, that kind of brought us in contact with the problem. And then the three of us were working on that business, getting into the Ruby world. I was getting involved in the open source community. Uh, we had started to work on kind of like some web-based debugger tools for ourselves. Again, just kind of open source. We weren't thinking of it as a business. Uh, but I think the galvanizing event there was we went to RailsConf in 2006, it probably would have been. And I just was amazed by the type of people that were there. So I've been to many technical conferences over the years prior to then. There's Again, this has changed a lot since those days, but there's there's basically a very particular type of demographic, right? The Maybe the negative stereotype there is the Unix neckbeard. But when we went to the Rails conference, I was really surprised by how many people were there that were sort of not really identified as programmers, that maybe had a more of a design aesthetic, more interested in kind of taste and style. 
but also just a greater diversity of of people that were drawn again to this programming language and to this to this framework as a way to accomplish their goals. And so we said, you know, this open source thing we've been working on is pretty good, but we're sort of doing it on our on the side. There's this amazing community of very interesting people here that we're now connected to. We'd love to serve them with a good product. And then in the meantime, we had experienced this deployment problem. And so those all together kind of made us say, you know what, let's take this thing that was sort of a side open source project and turn that into a business. Fair enough. And with, um, I know that you joined Y Combinator and I know obviously it was the early years of Y Combinator. Can you tell me what that experience was like and what you learned from Paul and Jessica through the process? For sure. That was another piece of the origin story, which was we'd been reading Paul Graham's essays um, and kind of had the idea. And I think James probably gets the most credit for that, saying, like, look, we should move to San Francisco and do this. And we were all in Los Angeles at the time. And so in various ways, we we cooked up a plan to do so. And, yeah, ended up joining the winter, probably 2008 batch. And it's hard to remember now because YC is such a juggernaut. They've really defined the modern startup. They've defined the modern Silicon Valley. But back then they were a pretty small operation. Most of the companies that have gone through it were pretty small time at that point. Dropbox was in the cohort before us. But you know, at that time, I think it was just the founders working on it and was not in any way a, a big success. Um, and actually, I remember the cohorts, the classes were so small. When we, our batch started, the previous batch had a little like dinner, welcome dinner for us. And I think it was like seven or eight people from the previous batch and, you know, four or five from the, from the next one, uh, which gives you an idea where it was. And, you know, they sense even in the time that I was involved in it, they had to expand the size of the space and all that sort of thing. And it greatly, greatly grew out. So yeah, YC was a great experience for us. It was the first time that I had connected with other entrepreneurs outside of um, James and Ryan. And of course, that hooked us into the whole network of Silicon Valley and taking venture capital versus just bootstrapping the business, which is what I've done for all my past ventures. Um, and, you know, the rocket ship was up and away. Brilliant. And with Paul and Jessica, were because I'm imagining that back then in those days with the so few entrepreneurs actually in the cohorts, I'm guessing they were pretty hands-on. I was wondering if there was anything specific that they advised you on or if there was any kind of anecdotes from that time. For sure. I mean, Paul and Jessica were Y Combinator then. Uh, I don't think there was other, there was maybe two other partners, but I never met them. I think they might've been on the East Coast or something. Um, no, that's not correct. There's also Trevor. Um, but Paul and Jessica were really at the center of things. And yeah, they guided us. You know, they were they were mom and dad and we were the camp kids and they gave us tons of advice. And of course, we had many great speakers and things, but it was really, I think, their input first and foremost that helped guide us. And probably one good anecdote there might be Paul Graham had drawn on the whiteboard a sort of, uh, I think now fairly, I don't know if famous is quite the right word for it, but it actually has a basically a graph of where you have the initial hype of your tech crunch launch and then a crash down and then the struggles and then the eventual uh, and he had sort of drawn that on the, the whiteboard. I think I later snapped a photo on my, you know, iPhone one at the time, taking a photo on your camera and posting it on social media was still a, kind of a new, new thing. But uh, yeah, that kind of graph and that guidance about what to expect from the entrepreneurial journey, not just from a pragmatic and business sense, but really from an emotional sense from people who had been through it, they had been through it. 
And of course, a bit like Jessica's work documenting the experiences of so many founders uh, meant that they knew both first and secondhand what that journey was like emotionally and could be there to, to support us in that side of things. Fantastic. I mean, Jessica's book is actually, when I first started in tech, that founders at work book was the thing that made me fall in love. You know, I absolutely fell in love with the industry and and, part, and partly is the reason why I do interviews because I just absolutely mm. loved her book. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I will also say briefly, yeah. you know, Paul probably tends to get the, at least back then was more the front and center person because of the, because of his essays and maybe he was more likely to take the mic at an event or something, but it really was the two of them together and Jessica's involvement and input and advice and selection of candidates and everything like that, I think is as much YC as Paul Graham is. I'm really glad that you said that because I don't think she gets enough credit. And I have asked her several times to do an interview because I'd love to interview her. I think she has a very interesting story, a backstory. And also she has helped so many people. And like you said, Paul is just the the most forward facing, I guess. The fact that he's still on Twitter and pretty active on it means that he gets a lot of credit for YC. But I, I you know, I've heard him say himself that, you know, it was very much both of them. I've come to accept that personality types, I see this in my own businesses as well. There's some folks who just really are comfortable being out in the spotlight and other folks that prefer being more behind the scenes. And I think that is just a personality type and you got to let people go to, you know, be gravitated to I think it's best for people to go to wherever they're most comfortable. So, Yeah, I couldn't agree more because actually there's so many people that I always have a long list. I actually have a spreadsheet of people that I want to interview. And there are so many that I know do not want to be in the limelight. And I think, well, if I could just get their story out there, people would understand them more and it would inspire others. And as soon as they give me a firm no, I know exactly the type of person there. I think it's not everyone wants to be out there front and center. And also most people don't need to be, you know, if it's not benefiting them mentally, emotionally, or for work reasons, then why should they do it? That's why I say actually some of the most interesting people in our space actually just aren't on Twitter. And like, you're not, you're not very active on it. Some of the greatest minds that I've interviewed and speak to are not active on Twitter, which probably says a lot. I need to come off it, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Well, hopefully we all have our have a role to play. But yeah, for, for some folks, you know, they're going to be the front person for the band. And for others, they're going to be the, you know, the keyboardist in the back yeah. composing the songs and maybe being the, the backbone that makes it makes it all work. And it's it's easy to overemphasize the contributions of the people who just happen to be uh, in the front. So good to try to try to counterbalance that in our industry, maybe. Yeah. Um, going back, how did it take off? So you, you obviously go through YC, was there a particular point when you realized you were onto something? Yeah, I would say pretty quickly we got a really great response from the the Ruby community. Um, we had actually, the early version was more of an online code editor. And these days, I think we were too early for that. These days you have things like GitHub code spaces, which actually was largely spearheaded by a former Heroku person or Repl it as another one that I think kind of like this, being able to edit everything completely in a web based environment is here in 2020. Well, two now is becoming a reality. Uh, we were t- basically too early with our web-based editor in 2007, but nevertheless, people liked it. They liked the concept. They're impressed by the technology, and we eventually made a pivot to a more kind of command-line deployment thing. But I think the basic idea of that 
easy push button deployment where you don't need to think about servers or edit config files. You can focus on your app and the whole thing has just a fun, emotive, just happiness oriented experience is, you know, that core of it remained. And so, yeah, we got this immediate good response, but I think where it really took off was once we made this pivot into the command line driven environment, which really fit with how the Ruby people worked at the time. And we integrated to Git and Git was on the, the rise. Uh, GitHub started kind of around the same time we did. And that those things together really helped it, um, really helped it take off. Yeah, it's like a perfect storm, isn't it? Sometimes people are too early or too late. And either way, it it needs more than one thing to work. People often talk about luck. I don't know that it is luck, but sometimes the stars do align and and things happen. So you were growing quite quickly. You raised, I know, 13 million, which was to help sustain the business. What was your goal with it? What did success look like to you when you first started? it? Yeah, I think we just wanted to build a great product that, um, you know, would be sustainable. And we were very new to the venture capital Silicon Valley world. And the idea of people, investors giving you money to be able to hire people and kind of build you know, build your dream product was was new. Again, we we had done in various combinations together several different businesses in the past. They'd always been bootstrapped or maybe a little bit of friends and family money. You know, so you put your own savings in from the previous job, kind of thing. So it was a whole other story to be able to have. You know, we raised a few million bucks at the outset, which was a lot back then. Nowadays, that's probably a pretty normal seed round, but that was a Series A back in those days. So yeah, I'm not sure that we had like a crystal clear idea of what success was, but I knew that I wanted to serve the Ruby community. We had a later vision for going to a multi, basically being able to deploy other kind of languages, which we eventually did. Um, and just to really create a product that would allow you to, again, it, it comes back to that Ruby developer experience, developer happiness concept that that comes really from the creator of the language that we said, can we can we get something that has this vibe on the deployment side? And in terms of community, because you've mentioned a couple of times about the Ruby community, during my research, I was looking at a whole host of things because you've got so many different interests. And I found it really interesting because one of my favorite parts of doing any interviews is also the research and, and seeing what you can find. And I was reading about Howard Rheingold and he talked about community as being a part of technology, a driver of technology and an emergent effect technology. And I wanted to know, how do you marry community with the software you build? So at what point does community enter the design process for you? Yeah, community is critically important. My colleague and podcast co-host Mark likes to talk about social technologies. You know, in in this day and age, that might be something like Twitch, for example, that can be a, a a place for communities to form around video game streamers or live coders, that kind of thing. Not to mention, yeah, the long list of social media and YouTube and other ways that we can kind of come together as people, find our shared interests, share tips and tricks, inspire each other. I think all that is incredibly important and also has been an important part of every business that I've ever had success with, uh, Heroku being a, a really exhibit A. However, my my dark secret, if you want to call it that, is I am not good at community. I am the sort of person that maybe coming back to that kind of childhood um, persona or childhood uh, tendency, I am definitely the maker that wants to go into my cave and polish, you know, work on my my little project more or less in private or with a couple of a couple of close collaborators and um, not have to worry too much about a connection to the the wider world. 
So that's, that's always been a challenge for me, but my trick has been to either where I can, if I'm a participant in an existing community and then hopefully can be a good citizen in that and, and do something that I think serves the community. I, I hope Heroku did that for, uh, and is continuing to do that for the Ruby and later Node communities, for example, in my current venture, Muse and, and Ink and Switch. We'll, we'll talk about those later maybe, but they're very connected to the tools for thought communities and the independent research communities. And those are just critically important, but my trick there or probably in every case is to partner with people who are good at that. So for example, in the Ink and Switch side, Peter Van Hardenberg is absolutely amazing at being connected to the world, creating an opening and welcoming environment, making it you know bigger than just your company and your product, being a really a participant in a larger, a larger mass of people who all have this shared passion and shared interests. So I've I've come to accept that I'll probably never be particularly good at that myself, but as long as I partner with people who are, I think uh, I think it'll do okay. Thank you for explaining that because we were talking earlier different kind of roles that people have within the company, and I definitely want to talk about Ink and Switch and Muse. But um, just going back to that, in in terms of the design process, you you must think about the user and how they're going to use it. What kind of research did you do for Heroku? Where were you just going out to the conferences or Ruby community or were you posting on, I don't know, Reddit or where were you getting user feedback from? Yeah, to start, we were designing for ourselves. I mean, I'm probably a, a, an odd person in the sense that I do have a software engineering background, but I'm, for me, programming is very much a means to an end and I tend to be annoyed by a lot of fiddly little details that I need to deal with. So I wanted to make something that would make it fast and easy and kind of um, forgiving to errors for me. And then others seem to be drawn to that as well. So that was kind of our starting place. When it comes to yeah, listening to feedback for sure conferences, you know, we would have a booth every year at RailsConf, we did RubyConf as well, and we would just, you know, basically sit there kind of genius bar style and people would come up and ask us questions, which could be that they're existing users of the product and they want to show us something they're doing. They could be they've never heard of us and they just say, Tell me what you do. But regardless, we would use that chance to turn it into as much of a it's easy to talk about yourself and your product because you're passionate about it, but turn it into a two way conversation and really learn about them and their context and what problem are they trying to solve and what is their life like and what do they value, that kind of stuff. And the other thing we uh, did there, I think, was really pay attention to what I would call folk practices. This is where you see people using a product maybe in a way it's not really intended. Think of, I don't know, someone using you know Excel as, as a shopping list, something like that. So we saw, for example, people using our early product, this web-based editor, where they would essentially use the import functionality, which was really supposed to be a one-time thing. Bring in your project that you built locally, import it, now it's running, now you can edit it in our web-based editor. But we saw people who would essentially never use a web-based editor and just import over and over. They would edit it locally and then import it again. And you look at this and you could, you know, your knee-jerk reaction is to think, hey, you're not using the product right. But then as we looked closer at that and we saw that that was something that was a pattern, we said, you know, actually there's something here. People don't want the editor. What they want is the fast deployment. And that in indeed led to the insight of let's kind of cut away the editor because there's less value there or it's just less technically feasible and focus on this underlying thing. The company was acquired by Salesforce for $250 million in 2011. I wanted to ask, I find that most innovators are not doing 
the, the work they're doing because of the money. And like you said, when I asked what success looked like, it wasn't an end game of an exit. So this happened. What did you decide to do next? When did Ink and Switch happen? Yes. Well, exactly as you said, for me, entrepreneurship and building products has always been kind of my art, uh, which is I have something I want to express about the world or how I think computers should work, how the internet should work, how our society can organize around those things. And this is a, this is a vehicle uh, to do that. And obviously businesses have pragmatic needs. They need to earn more money than they spend or otherwise they, they die and you need to address that. But to me, that's very much a means uh, to the end. So uh, from that perspective, taking the acquisition to Salesforce in addition to providing a kind of a long-term home for Heroku uh, was also, you know, created a lot of financial independence for me, the other founders, and many of the other folks on the team. And after that kind of put me in the position of thinking, okay, well, I have a little more freedom now to kind of think longer term or think bigger picture. And if I do that, what would I want to do? And that led to Ink and Switch, which is a research lab that's thinking about basically what's ahead 10 years in computing, uh, but also trying to build the future we want to come true. And notably, even in the time we were working on Heroku, I think the world of computers and the internet has changed so massively, right? A world with mainstream adoption of smartphones, with Facebook, with everything that we have in the modern world where computers and the internet have become our number one information source and become primarily, for example, messaging devices rather than, I don't know, a place you edit a spreadsheet or a, or a, a you know, use a word processor. And I think by and large, that's a very good thing, but it's come with a lot of de-emphasis on computers for creative and productive uses. And so we didn't really have an idea for a startup or a product, but we just said, this is an area that needs research. We want to think long-term. And I was inspired by some industrial research labs of the past, like Bell Labs or Xerox Park and said, you know what, we have a little bit of freedom to potentially pursue this now. And that's uh, why we decided to start Ink and Switch. I love the idea of Ink and Switch, and I, I love your site and, and the papers that you've got up there. What's been one of the most interesting things you've learned from setting it up as an independent research lab? Yeah, it was quite a journey because in the beginning, we kind of didn't have a good idea of even what the organization was going to be. We just had this idea that we want to think longer term. We're not focused on for-profit products, although, of course, we do want to look into things that maybe have potential to be products because I think less about earning money and more about commercialization to me is a way to take an innovation and put it in real people's hands to solve real problems in their life, which ultimately is the reason I do this. I don't want to have big ideas just to have them. I want to help people. That's that's my driving you know, my driving motivation. Um, so probably the big surprise for us was we ended up going pretty deep into the the existing research world, human-computer interaction, computer science, distributed systems, et cetera, which obviously is largely an academic thing. You know, universities have their own labs. There are industrial research labs as well, modern-day ones, or corporate, corporate R&D labs, you could say. I don't know, like a Microsoft Research or Google X, that kind of thing. Um, but in terms of most research that gets done, this very forward thinking, you know, what's, what's 10 years in the future, basic research uh, type of things that tends to come from the academic world. And one, the big surprise there was academic world folks that are working on computers and design and human computer interaction and startup commercial world people basically hardly talk to each other. And, and in fact, there's even a, a, 
impedance mismatch between the way they communicate, right? Academics communicate with each other by two-column PDFs created with LaTeX that are distributed through academic journals. And startup people communicate with each other through blog posts they put on their personal site uh, that they tweet about, and then they meet at technical conferences. Not to say that there's no overlap at all, but a surprising lack of communication between those two worlds who are fundamentally interested in very similar things. So I think actually one of the best things we've been able to do, it wasn't a goal of the lab we started, but we kind of organically discovered was help helping create a bridge between people in the academic world on computers and the internet and people in the commercial world on that. And Muse, your current work at the moment is the Muse iPad app. Can you tell us about that? Because I know it's spun out of your research there. But also, um, what what problem did you identify? What was the problem that you thought, this is how we're going to solve it? Exactly. So yeah, Muse is a spin out. And so the idea there is the research lab, we want to keep the research pure, I guess you could say, where we just do the research, which involves building prototypes and testing those prototypes. But ultimately, we just publish that openly. Here's what here's what worked. Here's what didn't. It goes in these these long essays uh, that you can read on the Ink and Switch website. Um, but occasionally, we come across things where we think, you know, this is this has commercial potential, and of course, it has to be far enough along. The technology has to be far enough along to be something that you could start to build a product that could be kind of productionized. So one of the tracks of research. You know, we were looking into things like what became called Local First, which is about kind of storage and collaboration technologies. Uh, we were looking into things like end-user programming, which is how to make basically programming more accessible. But one of the tracks of research was really around tablets, um, which I think the tablet kind of form factor has been something we've believed is the future for 25 years. I don't know what. You see it in science fiction movies. You see it in products that have come out going back to the Palm Pilot and before and, you know, and today maybe with the iPad and or the Microsoft Surface. And it really seems like a device you can hold in your hands and carry around and has all these desirable qualities that we associate with our mobile phones, but has the bigger screen, the more space, maybe you bring in the stylus for more precision. That really seems like that could or should be the, the future of computing or, or an important part of the future of productive computing somehow. But somehow most tablets end up being a thing that sits on your living room table to watch Netflix and browse Facebook or a point of sale device in a, you know, in a coffee shop. And so we we're kind of researching that path to try to better understand um, kind of what the mismatch is there. And in the process of that, one of the prototypes we developed was this, what we would call a spatial canvas for thinking. Maybe nowadays you call it like a digital whiteboard because there's 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 products like Miro or uh, Milanote are some examples there. FigJam, it's one from Figma that are sort of these collaborative spaces that are whiteboard-ish, post-it notes on a wall, move media around, open canvas, this kind of thing. Um, but yeah, we kind of felt that that was a perfect fit for this kind of tablet stylus form factor and our research, our prototypes and our testing seemed to, to show that. And so we'd gotten far enough along, we published a long essay about it and just based on the response to that, we said, hey, we think there's commercial potential here. So this is a chance to test the kind of the theory, the flywheel theory of the lab, which is spin out some of our research, form a commercial entity the lab takes a stake in that entity just the same way like an accelerator like Y Combinator would, and then that entity can stand or fail on its own using this hopefully forward-facing research. And that's that's what became uh, Muse. And for those that haven't played with it, because I have, I played with it today and I thought it was brilliant. And also, it, I don't know what I was expecting, but it, it did exceed my expectations. So 
obviously a lot of people are using it, I imagine. What would you say is the kind of main purpose for it? If you were to sum it up in one sentence. Yeah, I can even sum it up in one word for you. It's thinking. And this is quite unprecedented. In fact, we don't typically use computers to think. We usually use analog tools. So sketchbook, a whiteboard, post-it notes on a wall, maybe even just yeah, taking a long walk and pondering something, right? It tends to come in these forms. And then when you sit down at the computer, you sort of are into what we would usually call production mode or authoring mode. So a good example here would be, you know, you're writing a screenplay. So you need to plot out the characters and the storyline, and you need to think about how they all interact and what the climactic moments are going to be and what the arc of the story is. And if you go to any, you know, if you look at the writer's room in Hollywood uh, for TV or movies, those will typically have folks sitting around kind of ideating on what the you know, what the storyline is going to be, what the character is going to be, et cetera. And they'll do that using, you know, pen and paper, essentially, because that's the best way to do that. And then when they have all the basics, kind of core ideas figured out, here's the arc of the story, here's the characters, et cetera, then you go and sit down at some screenwriting software and actually type out a script. You don't just start at a blank page in the screenwriting software and then figure it all out right there. So with some exceptions, there's very little in the computing world that's sort of really designed as thinking tools. So we saw this as a potential opportunity in the same way many other, you know, previously analog processes like, I don't know, we used to, PowerPoint was once upon a time, you know, slides that you would, you know, type on a typewriter and put onto an overhead projector. And eventually we saw the value of translating that to the digital world. So Muse uses a similar idea, which is what if we could capture some of these great things about these analog ideation tools, but bring them into a digital space that would be, for example, more compatible with sharing with colleagues or collaborating. You know what, when you said thinking, I was thinking, I'd never really thought about that, ironically, but it's actually very true. Most of us use computers in one way or another to basically learn more, but not actually think more. Even Twitter is an example, but even if you use the search on Google, you're you're not thinking. It's almost automatic. And that's why people actually say the more kind of online you are, the less you're using your brain in the right way. So I find it very fascinating. And I think it's a great app. When I asked people on Twitter, what what I should ask you, one of the questions from Fede um, Sanchez was, how do you use Muse to think better? Yeah, Muse has become an absolute staple for me. Obviously, I have a little bit of a you know, a bias there to, to use it since it's our team's product and I want to be testing it out and everything. But it, it genuinely does fill a huge place in my workflow. Now, what's interesting is I tend to go through swings because there are certain times in my career or my life where I have big problems I need to work through, strategic thinking, something like a product roadmap would be a good example, or something even in personal life where I need to figure out something about, for example, a a difficult medical decision that's ahead for for someone in my family. And I need to not only research it and understand it, but consider the trade-offs and think about what's ahead in life, for example. But yeah, business-wise, many, many things ranging from product roadmaps to thinking about organizational structure to um, certainly anything on the marketing side where you want to you know, develop messaging. I use it to collect user interview notes, which obviously you can do that in out of notes tools or Google Docs or that sort of thing. But the very linear nature of it and the very structured nature of it to me doesn't work as well as a kind of a messy, we sometimes compare it to like a desk where you have a bunch of papers on it. You can kind of shove them around and highlight things and stick post-it notes on stuff and 
put two pages side by side with each other. It's that messiness that helps you find new connections, be creative and sort of like, yeah, yeah, I can put these two user interviews side by side and suddenly I, you know, just the text of them and suddenly I see a pattern that I might not have seen otherwise. So it, it figures very, very heavily into my work when I am in this kind of thinking or strategic mode. There's other times where I just need to execute. We need to build out some web content or I have a bunch of production work to do on my podcast or something. And in that case, I don't open muse much at all because of course I'm in my production tools there I'm not thinking I'm doing and there's there's different times for both in in your work but I would argue that most knowledge workers certainly anyone that's a founder or a product designer even engineers I would say thinking about architecture that sort of thing in a way if you reach for your production tool that's like a code editor or if you're a designer it's probably figma or sketch too early when you haven't figured out what you should really be doing, you're missing an opportunity to be more strategic. I, I appreciate you going into detail there because actually you've opened my eyes a bit to how I, I do things very wrong, I think. And I, I don't actually give much time to thinking, which is evident in, in lots of ways, I guess. Uh, you touched on the podcast then. I did want to mention that. You have a fantastic podcast. I absolutely love it. And the, also you're doing this video docu-series called Create. I think they're both brilliant. And I wondered... If when you talk to other founders, because I know you're an advisor and investor too, what's kind of advice you give to people about storytelling, whether it's the story behind how you created the app, or if it's about a founder writing blog posts, what advice would you have for founders? Yeah, stories are so important, right? I probably have been through the whole arc in my career of starting as kind of an engineer and again, a very kind of naturally introverted or kind of heads down sort of person where I think if you just build a great product, that's what matters. And then I don't know, people will find it on their own. And that's, it's just not true. People need to, first of all, be able to find what you've created or the people who are interested in what you're creating, which for a niche product can be a challenge because you need to find those special people that fit your exact demographic. But then, then they need to to have it explained to them, right? And and that's not a saying that there's some kind of like leading them by the nose, but more that you look at, especially a piece of productivity software, let's be honest, most productivity software just looks like a bunch of white boxes on a screen. And the thing that makes it special is how you use it and what its capabilities are. And that's not just an explanation of features, but it's also, for example, philosophies behind it. So you, you mentioned earlier there, for example, this, yeah, we're all, we're all in our social media feeds, you know, you're on Twitter, you're Googling things, but that doesn't really leave space for quiet contemplation or thinking your own original thoughts. You tend to be caught up in the thoughts of others because we have this unfettered access to the, the fire hose of all human knowledge and all current human thinking through these technologies. But having, you know, built into our product, for example, is a bit of a disconnection is a bit of a, a, so for example, it's very important for us that Muse works completely offline. So unlike, there are, there are other spatial canvases that are more web-based, and you know some of them are very good, but as soon as you, for example, one of my favorite places to think is to get on a, get on a long train ride where you may have intermittent or no uh, internet connection. But actually that's perfect because now you're sort of out of the, the flow for a little while and you can be alone with your, your thoughts. But if your tool instantly doesn't work anymore, then, you know, the whole thing is scuttled. And so that design philosophy or that motivation is something we have to explain because then a lot of the choices in how the tool works 
will make more sense to someone. Whereas if you come in kind of cold and you just see the way that it works and you go, this is weird. It's different from other stuff. It's not what I expect. Why is it like this? Doesn't make sense to me. Close it, go away. So yeah, telling that story, whether it's specific about features, whether it's underlying philosophies, or even whether it's personal stories about how people use this, how you and your team uses it, why you wanted to make it. I think that's a huge part of it. It's, it's half of what companies and products need to be about but we of course we all tend to focus on the product development for for whatever reason it's true but i i just think people aren't um aware i think people are definitely becoming more aware but this idea of storytelling that can help your business because people think well if i if i'm out there and i'm putting this up and that up i'm not focusing on the product like you said but actually that that whole theory of if you build it they will come like you said is absolutely not true and yeah. and getting in touch with your community through storytelling is one way to do it. And you mentioned the podcast there earlier, and actually that that was part of my journey as well. And and yeah, I like the term storytelling. You can talk about marketing, and I think there's some overlap between those things. But there's something very authentic and natural, I think, about sort of storytelling that maybe isn't captured in the classic growth hacking or marketing perspective. And a, and a little like anecdote on that with the podcast is. When we started, it really was just a hunch that it would be fun. And I thought maybe it would be interesting for the business, but I didn't really expect it to be important, just like kind of a fun side thing to sort of document our thinking and a little bit behind the scenes. But actually, it turned out to be incredibly important. And we realized it was so because once we had recorded a few episodes where we talked about, you know, one episode was about philosophy behind a particular sort of design of a particular feature. Another was something about how we run the company and our partnership model, for example. Um, and then we would get started to get feedback from people. And especially what's around that same time, we were charging for the product and someone write in and they would say, you know, I, I purchased the product pretty quickly and I understood it or it resonated with me because I've been listening to your podcast and therefore all these unusual choices you've made really just immediately made sense to me. Not that the podcast is necessarily a big lead driver. I think podcasting is such a deep format that it just that the raw numbers of people that can bother to listen to an hour of audio or whatever it's going to be just isn't enough to give you like real true growth for your product. But what it does do is it has that depth. And so what we've seen is folks that listen to a few episodes of the podcast, the likelihood of them being successful with onboarding to the product and the likelihood of them later wanting to support what we're doing or purchase the product or use it in a more serious way and to, and to trust our team and trust our intentions and where we're going over the long term, that that's turned out to be just a very cornerstone piece of our business. That's great to hear because I wanted to, one of my questions was, what was the impact? Like, what have you learned from it? And I think, like you said, it might not even be sales leads, but what it does is it gets people to understand and know you and your team better. And that's the point of me doing this podcast as well, is that when I started in, in the mobile apps industry, I knew of all these apps that I use, like Shazam and everything else, I was using them almost daily and I knew nothing about the founders. And so I just started this quest of like digging deeper and, and then I found so many interesting stories of their journeys. I know we don't have much time, so I've got a few more questions. What's Muse 2 going to look like? Yeah, well, I'm very happy to say we somewhat recently announced our um, Muse 2.0, or sort of pre-announced Muse 2.0. So the first version was a deep thinking tool very specific to the iPad. So basically it uses all the two-handed gestures and the stylus and everything, things that are affordances really only available on that exact platform. But iPad continues to be 
while it's a very successful platform, it's not a place, most people do their work elsewhere on a desktop computer specifically. And so the next move in our vision, we always want to, we want to be on all devices that a person has, but the next move really is to the desktop. So Muse 2.0 will be a Mac app that has many things in common with the iPad version, but also has many things that are specific to the desktop form factor, the keyboard and mouse, the bigger screen, the multi-window setup. And then that in turn will be followed by a phone version, which is more about quick capture and lookup. And then of course, sharing to the web because sharing is incredibly important. Um, and I think that's why these web-based tools from Notion to Figma to Google Docs are so successful is the collaboration capability that they they bring. So all that's coming up with the Muse 2 launch here. That's just, just a few months out, I hope. Exciting. And with the pandemic, I'm sure things have changed a lot because you were just saying there about most people don't do work on their iPad. But what I would imagine is during the pandemic with so many people, I know your team is remote as well, with people collaborating remotely, I'd imagine that there'll be more of an uptake of people using iPads and other forms like that where they can collaborate while they're on the move because so many of us are trying to carry out everyday activities like looking after families and working and and so we're moving around a lot more have you seen any kind of change in usage or an uptick or anything as a result of the pandemic and people working from home certainly well yeah i think you know writ large a perhaps often unmentioned effect of COVID has been basically a boost to the technology industry. You know, obviously we know Zoom's success, but I, I think we've seen that through a lot of collaboration tools that just more and more people are doing what I think a lot of folks in the technology industry have done for a while. You know, our team, Ink and Switch was all remote from the start. Muse was as well. So, you know, we've been doing that for a while. Lots of companies have as well, but the pandemic sort of forced people into a reckoning with what you can do virtually, and that's basically been good for the technology industry. So we did see an uptick, or, or I guess you would say we saw anecdotally that people would say, now that I'm not in my office anymore, and I'm kind of reevaluating my tools, and I really count on my whiteboard, you know, when I have a problem I need to work through. Actually, one of our little kind of taglines, or it's on our, our website, is basically saying that your deep thinking doesn't happen at your desk. So where you, you get up and take a walk, you pace around, you go to the coffee shop, whatever it is. Um, but in, in this case, you know, we, we heard anecdotes like, you know, I'm used to when I need to like really think something through, I get up and pace around in front of my, my whiteboard. I don't have the whiteboard anymore in my home office. So I was reevaluating my tools. So I think Muse did get a, a little bit of a boost, a boost due to that reevaluation. Now we don't have the collaboration feature yet, although that's, that's coming. So I think the collaborative web, uh, stuff like, yeah, Milano, Miro, Mural and so forth probably did the best out of that effect. But for sure, I think that as things go more digital and virtual, then naturally this ideation space, which again, has really been one of the last ones to resist digitization, right? It's people who are even programmers who are, you know, everything in their life is, is on the computer. But then when it comes time to let me like think about this architecture uh, of my new software system, you know, they break out the paper sketchbook. And of course, I love paper and I have no, nothing against analog tools. Post-it notes are a $2 billion a year business, by the way. But when you go to a more remote world and you want more flexibility and more archivability and the ability to collaborate both synchronously and asynchronously, you know, photos of a whiteboard just don't cut it. But when you were saying just then about how, you know, engineers and, and various others will go to pen and paper, I was thinking as writers, there's a lot of us that do that as well. But going back to what we we're talking about at the beginning of this interview about schools and how when you're at school, it's 
everything's formulaic, right? You have to go to school. You have to follow the rules. You have to do this. And I think pen and paper is just part of that history. That's what we did. But the next generation probably won't. My impression of you as a founder is that you're very kind of thoughtful and intentional and you're a big believer in setting values. And whilst doing research for our interview, I found a great talk by Brett Victor where he talks about inventing on principle. So I wanted to ask you, what is your guiding principle? Well, first of all, thank you for the the compliments there. I certainly strive to be a a thoughtful person. And I think that is something that can also differentiate us in this age of of hot takes and so forth, right? It's part of what, what Muse stands for and what I personally stand for, which is stopping to pause for a minute, slow down, think something through, and form your own original idea about something rather than just a, a knee-jerk reaction to what we're getting out of the information stream is, let's say, I think it would be a better world if, if more of us did that on a more regular basis. But when it comes to guiding principle, yeah, I guess, you know, I'd probably tend to reference back to an essay I wrote last year, which is called Making Computers Better. And so if we kind of, you know, close the circle back to where we started, which was my young fascination with computers and computers as a creative medium, I wouldn't have said it back then. It just seemed like a very interesting toy and, and you know, a, a big uh, level up from the pen and paper or other ways to create that I had had access to up until then. But yeah, I think I had that fascination and like to imagine I at least somehow saw its potential and that potential has started to unfold in a big way in our society. And there's basically been both pros and cons to that, right? There's a lot of a lot of negative effects on society. You can say that computers and the internet getting more wide, widely distributed have created, but also a huge number of positives. I do believe the positives outweigh the negatives, but I think it is our responsibility or I take it as my personal responsibility to think in terms of not just what is a product people want in responding to market demand, which is all well and good and important, of course, but to think in terms of, okay, computers and the internet are here and are going to be the defining thing that shapes our society over the coming 20, 50, 100 years. I think we've only barely seen the start of it. So choices we make now about the products that we use and the technologies that we use are probably going to have a very long lasting effect on the shape of our society. And so I as an individual, and I sort of call on others to do the same thing, particularly if you have the ability, you know, if many of us in the, in the industry are lucky enough to be very employable or made some money along, along the way in this lucrative industry. And so if you have the ability to stop and say, what is a place I can put my efforts that will make computers and the internet, not just more popular or more fun, but also something that really improves humanity's most important are noble pursuits like art and science, but also our mental and physical health. Those are the, the places where I think computers can and should be put to their best use. But surprisingly, we seem to invest a lot less of our brain power, our investment dollars and so forth. So that to me is probably the core guiding principle that can bubble up to everything else I ever do. Great. My last question to you, and it's going back again, right to the beginning. I always ask people at the end of the interview, if you could go back in time, so a younger Adam who's in school pushing back against the teachers, what's one piece of advice you'd offer him? I would probably try to impress upon myself the importance of understanding people, both at a kind of an individual level, you know, emotional, individual people's emotions, but also at a higher level, communities, societies, groups of people and how we behave. 
I think it's very easy for an engineering-minded person. You know, many of us are somewhere on the Asperger spectrum. We like systems and very rational things that can be understood in, in the sense of inputs and outputs, or, you know, you can understand in kind of a pure mathematical way. But our world is, and our society is made of people, and we're social animals, and we are not always rational. And I don't, people even use the word rational to, to be like a compliment or that that's better, that's, that's superior to whatever the, the alternative is, irrational or something. But actually our emotional drives and our core primal things, are, that's a huge part of what makes us human and drives us to do the things we want to do and shape our society. And so I think I kind of wanted to isolate myself from that or, or just not worry about that, not learn about that. And, and computers in one way offered a refuge because I could go into this more rational, systematic world and think, okay, great, now I'm in this world and I don't need to deal with the messy, complicated world of people and their feelings. But eventually I came to understand, first of all, how important those things are. Second, that I'm a person and I have those messy and complicated feelings as well, much as I like to pretend otherwise. And furthermore, that if you want to do anything interesting and meaningful in the world, that often involves getting groups of people together and working together as a team or a community or a whole society to, to do larger things than an individual could do. So later in my life, I hope I corrected for that somewhat and made more, much more effort to invest in learning about and navigating the world of all things, people and human and emotion. But I think for a long time, I, I paid a blind eye to that. Thank you, not only for your honesty there and your vulnerability, but also I've learned so much from you during this interview. So thank you so much. That was really my pleasure. You ask great questions. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Adam Wiggins. Don't forget, the best way to celebrate this podcast is to like, share and review wherever you listen to it. It always means so much to me to see your feedback and it really does help others to find it too. In this episode, Adam referenced an essay he wrote last year And so I wanted to share a quick quote from it, which I think sums up um, both Adam's character and his guiding principle. He said, I was eight years old when I saw my first computer and it took my breath away with possibility. I saw a limitless canvas for creation and an infinitely malleable medium for self-expression. That childhood obsession transformed into an adult devotion to understanding how computers can be best put into service for human needs. Finally, he says, I have devoted my career to working on making computing better. Thanks again to Adam and thank you all for listening. See you next week on the Danielle Newnan podcast.